We are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. It would be fantastic to see you there. Now, I was going through the past shows and I saw that we haven't done a sales-focused show on scaling sales teams in quite a while. And so I'm very excited to welcome today a phenomenal guest who's experienced it all in the form of Sam Blonde, Chief Sales Officer at Brex, the startup that provides corporate cards for startups. To date, they've raised over $57 million in funding from the likes of Y Combinator, Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, Yuri Milner, Eland Gill, and many more incredible names. Prior to Brax, Sam was Chief Revenue Officer at Rainforest QA. Before Rainforest, Sam saw firsthand the hypergrowth scaling of Zenefis as VP of Sales, where he saw the company grow from 18 employees and 1 million in ARR to over 1,800 employees and over $70 million in ARR. And Sam got his start in the SaaS industry with Jason Lemkin at EchoSign as Director of Sales. And I do want to say a huge thank you to Jason for the intro today. I really do so appreciate that. However, before we move into to the show today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Virtuous. Virtuous is a donor management platform that really helps nonprofits build lasting donor relationships and ultimately increase giving. Its suite of CRM and marketing tools is simple enough to serve a nonprofit's entire staff, yet feature-rich enough to meet varied and complex fundraising needs. Learn more at virtuouscrm.com, that's virtuouscrm.com, and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Virtuous did, visit WePay pay.com forward slash sasta and wepay's got this really awesome cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments you can find that again at wepay.com forward slash sasta and speaking of being smart about your offering we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business and that's where reviews.io comes in reviews.io is a google trusted third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects monitors and publishes reviews to google bing facebook amazon and more allowing you to see a 360 degree view of your reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that is looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. And you can head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. And if trust is a core element of any business, so is communication. Enter Dialpad, the startup that offers teams a better path to unify communications. Build your voice with a business phone system, meetings, call center, and voice AI, connecting your team across all existing devices, and that's why over 50,000 of the world's most innovative companies choose Dialpad, from WeWork to Uber to Stripe. And whether you're a one-office company with less than 100 people, to the names listed above, Dialpad has got you covered. So put your team and communication first, and head over to dialpad.com to find out more. However, I'm now supremely excited to dive into one of our first sales-focused shows in a long time and welcome the fantastic Sam Blonde, Chief Sales Officer at Brex. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Sam, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. I've heard so many wonderful things from the main man, Mr. Lemkin. So thank you so much for joining me today, Sam. Thanks so much for having me, Harry. I've listened to the show a number of times and think what you do is just so fantastic. And to your point, thanks to Jason for making the connection and and all the other stuff that he's done for both you and me. Well, you're too kind and I'm wearing the Jason Lemkin fan club t-shirt as we speak. But I'd love to start (laughs) today. I'd love to start today with a little on you. And tell me, Sam, how did you make that initial entry into the world of SaaS? 
let's start with that. Yeah, so sort of by chance, actually, I'm, I'm from the Midwest and went to the University of Missouri. And when I graduated and it was time to start looking for a job, my brother was out in the Bay Area and he was in tech sales doing really well. This is about 11 years ago. And he said he'd get me a, a really cool job and did so. And the rest is sort of history. Um, that was 11 years ago. I came out here and started as an SDR at Cosign. That's how Jason and I originally connected. I um, was there for a number of years working with Brendan Cassidy, who is a great mentor of mine, uh, and then have had a number of stops along the way as well. Went to Zenefits, did some consulting, spent some time at Rainforest QA, and now at Brex. I mean, what an incredible career you have enjoyed over that 11 years. I do want to ask, though, many people read and learn from Jason from afar. You obviously mentioned that at the formative stages of your career, having the chance to work with him. What were some of the takeaways for you from that experience? So there, there are so many, and you know, probably listeners of this show see so many on Zaster, but a few that stand out to me. The first is loyalty. Jason, both when I was at EchoSign and then also throughout my career, there's nobody more loyal than Jason Lemkin. And so I try and apply that to the way that I work with individuals as well. And then there's more on the tactical side of things. You know, gosh, it's just a laundry list if you just look at his blog, but from how to hire the first sales folks, what profiles to look for, mistakes made in hiring, you know, different executive leaders. There's just a playbook that Jason has on building a SaaS company and more specifically, you know, lots of time spent in sales. And so I, I just study it somewhat regularly. No, I couldn't agree with you more there on the learnings from Jason. Uh, but I do want to break the show today into a couple of different components. Love to start on the sales team themselves, then move to the strategy that they really implement and then finish on the way that they execute that strategy. So does that sound good to you? It sounds like a plan. So starting on the sales team, you said to me before that the more reps does not always equal more revenue. This might go contra conventional thinking of every rep brings their quota and hence increased revenue. So can you unpack this for me, Sam, and your thought process for why you believe this? Yeah, of course. And and I think this is applicable more so to what I'll call earlier stage businesses. Let's say fewer than 10 sales reps or thereabouts, because hopefully by the time you're at 10 reps, you have somewhat of a system in place where you know if you spend this amount of dollars on marketing or if you hire this many SDRs, it's going to produce this number of demos or opportunities for the sales team to work. I think, you know, prior to then, it's not much of a science. It's more of an art. And, you know, oftentimes when I was consulting, I would uh, work with companies that would just think, again, to your point, conventional wisdom is hire more sales reps, I get more revenue. I think the problem with that is if the business can't support the additional sales reps from sort of a lead perspective or an opportunity perspective, you can actually impact the revenue negatively. And it makes sense because if you have the same number of opportunities spread across you know, a certain number of reps that are fully ramped and have a higher conversion rate than new hires would, and you take that same number of opportunities and you spread them across more reps, some of which have lower conversion rates, you're going to close less business. And so one of the tricks that I always do is look at reps' calendars. So if you just share your calendar with the different sales reps on the team, what you want to find is lots of activity, lots of calls, whether they be follow-up calls or first-time demos. What you don't want to see is a whole lot of blank space. And if you see that whole lot of blank space, I think it's a good leading indicator that you don't need more reps. You actually need more leads. And so focus on that problem prior to hiring additional reps. Can I ask, how do you see kind of the alignment and the requirement for demand gen hiring and sales team hiring to be in step together? And what does that ratio look like? Well, they certainly go hand in hand. Um, And I think there are different philosophies in terms of, you know, whether you spend the dollars on marketing or 
outbound sales. One thing that is important there is that not all opportunities are created equal. And so you can't necessarily look at just the, the total number of opportunities being created by the company. You actually have to look at the conversion rates by channel. And oftentimes what you'll find is, you know, referral opportunities and pure inbound opportunities close at a much higher rate than something like an outbound email campaign that generates a response saying, sure, I'll take a demo. And so, you know, make sure that you're looking at the opportunity all the way, not just from creation, but to close and then deciding where to spend your resources, whether they be on outbound or additional, you know, marketing to generate inbound leads. So the timing kind of seems crucial in terms of when to add headcount to sales. I have to ask then, you've seen many a scaling SaaS business. What are the benchmarks or inflection points when to really hire and add to that sales team? Yeah, it's a really good question. So some of the inflection points, as I mentioned, uh, you will start to hear feedback from reps saying that they're overwhelmed or overloaded with demos. That's actually a really good problem to have. Um, and if that exists, it's, it's a good sign to go ahead and start hiring. The alternative can also be true. As I said, when you share calendars, if you see a lot of blank space, you know that you need to generate some additional demand for the reps that you have. And so that's a sign that you either need to accelerate on marketing or SDR. All of that being said, I think the most important thing is that the opportunities that the company does have are converting. You know, piling on additional opportunities that aren't closing, you need to diagnose what the challenge is prior to accelerating growth. But if you have the ability to generate opportunities and you have the ability to close those opportunities at a level that is sort of acceptable to the business, I would continue pushing sort of as hard as you operationally can until you start to see warning signs that those things, that those metrics that you're tracking are, are changing. Absolutely. Nothing worse than a leaky bucket. But in Europe, there's this kind of very conventional wisdom that founders should sell up to a million dollars in ARR. Would you agree with that? It, it's definitely going to be company specific. You know, this is one of the things that Jason speaks about a lot, the importance of founders selling before they hire sales reps. I think it depends on the founder. If you have a highly technical founder that's really struggling with sales and needs some assistance, they're likely going to hire faster than somebody with a more you know business or sales type background that can actually get the product off the ground and get to that million dollars in ARR. So I think it's going to be sort of founder and company specific. All of that said, I think it's a great experience for the founder to do in any instance. It just sort of depends how long they go with that. And then, you know, the follow on to that, another Jason lesson, when it is time to hire your first rep, hire two. Yeah, no, I, I love the hiring step there. So now we know the kind of when's the right time to hire when hiring. How do you fundamentally assess who's the best person for the role in those very early days? Yeah, so there are a number of different things that I would look for in very early hires. The first is going to be around some level of similarity with the dollar value of deals that you're selling. So if it's a fairly transactional sale, you want to hire somebody with fairly transactional sales experience. If it's a true field enterprise type sale, you really need somebody with that type of field sales experience and don't mix the two. I think second, you want to find somebody with really early stage company experience. If this is your first sales rep hire, it would be great to hire somebody that it was also the first rep at a, a relatively successful company and had seen success in that exact role. Those are going to be, you know, sort of few and far between. So if you're able to get somebody that was one of the first five or 10 sales hires at a different startup company, the onboarding experience is going to be relatively similar there. So early stage company, similar deal sizes. And, you know, the one
one thing that isn't necessarily as relevant, at least in my experience, is domain experience. And so at a number of different companies, you know, I certainly didn't have any experience with electronic signature at EchoSign. I had no experience with HR software at Zenefits, no experience in QA software at Rainforest, and no experience in expense management and credit cards here at Brex. And, you know, it, it only takes a few weeks to really be able to ramp up on the product itself. So focus on the deal velocity and stage of the company that somebody has been. And then, of course, above all else is performance. Hire somebody that has been top performer from a stack ranking perspective at their previous employers, and that success will likely continue. You said about kind of the top performing nature there. I always chat to Jason. He says that hiring is so hard in San Francisco because essentially with the incumbent checks that are so large today to join Facebook's Googles of the world, startups either have to hire the jack of all trades or maybe the slightly burnt out exec who doesn't have that performance. How would you respond to this having seen that firsthand? Specifically, are you asking about the executive level or or leadership level or at the individual contributor level? Individual contributor level, the first sales hires, the first people in, you know, marketing and customer success and and the fact that it's just so expensive given the incumbent checks in the valley. Well, in sales, we have the advantage of for spending money on top sales reps, it oftentimes pays back, you know, multiple times um, because they're going to produce exponentially more than somebody that is potentially less expensive and not as good. Um, And so the justification, at least on the sales side for paying well, but being specific to paying for performance is typically easy to justify. What I mean by that is if you hire someone and give them a really aggressive on-target earnings package, but most of that is weighted towards the variable side, when they're successful and the business is paying them a lot of money, it also means they're bringing in a lot of money for the business. And so you can sort of justify the higher price and sort of matching what you alluded to as those those larger businesses in terms of what the total paycheck looks like. Okay, so in terms of those kind of brilliantly talented, high-performing salespeople, I'm interested, how do you think a startup can fundamentally attract the best talent today? There are a few things I think that sales reps are universally looking for. You know, oftentimes compensation is very important. And so if you can, as a business, build up a reputation of paying sort of above market rates or paying your reps very well, that's oftentimes going to attract the best talent. People are oftentimes looking to progress their careers very quickly. And so from a philosophical perspective, if the business believes that rewarding performers with promotions into more strategic roles, I think you're going to attract sort of the up and coming, really hungry, aggressive people that are looking to progress their careers. So I think those two are very important. You know, culture is always going to be important for any hire, specifically who they're reporting to and who's on their team. And so I think whenever you do hire, hire with a lens for, is this going to be a good culture fit? And are they going to um, have the values in place that we want to portray as a business? So I think those few things, paying very well, giving people the opportunity to progressing their of progressing their career and surrounding people with just really good employees are three things that are, are typically going to be important to those that are good. Can I ask Sam, how much of a role does having a top tier branded VC fund behind you, how much of a role does that play in attracting the best talent in terms of kind of validation? You know, I don't know specifically at the individual contributor level. I don't know necessarily that the brand or the name of the VC is as important. I think that some individual contributors and certainly leaders will 
will look at how much the company has raised, the valuation of the company, the growth trajectory, the typical sort of vanity metrics that you read about when you Google a company and look at their Crunchbase profile. But I don't know what the individual contributor, they necessarily care if it was this VC over that VC. That said, the, the brand name never hurts. Yeah, no, absolutely. But now we have the team in place. We have to construct the right strategy for them to execute on. And I'd love to start on top of funnel. Where do you see most founders placing most of their attention? It's really interesting. So when I was consulting, just a little story, when I was consulting, I helped probably eight or 10 different companies. And one of the first things that most of them would say to me as I would come and I'd start day one would be, um, I really think that you can help us impact conversion rates across the sales team. And I would say like, great, you know, I think I can too. And I'd spend a few days just sort of learning on my own without the guidance of the CEO. And almost uh, without exception, I would come back and I would say, you know, I can increase conversion rates right now. The team's at about 10%. It'll take a couple months if we really focus on increasing conversion rates, we can get them to 12%. It's going to take a discovery training and controlling cycle times and focusing on urgency and lots of different factors, but we can increase conversion rates by something like 20% in a couple months. Now, I think, you know, my time is actually better spent at the top of the funnel. I think we have an opportunity to potentially double leads in a week. And if we can keep conversion rates at 10% and we double leads or double what's coming into the top of the funnel, we've just doubled revenue in a week. And so I think sometimes founders focus is a little bit misplaced in terms of sales rep performance rather than necessarily making sure that the sales reps have all of the leads and opportunities in order to be successful and hit their quotas. And so that's oftentimes where I spend a lot of my focus. And then what I do is I look at, I create a hierarchy of opportunity channels and make sure that the ones at the top are being fully exhausted. And so what you'll typically find is that referrals are the highest quality opportunity. Oftentimes companies don't have a referral program in place. To me, that's just table stakes. Put a referral program in place. Those leads are going to close at something like 3x the average conversion rate because you have somebody that is a customer telling somebody else how great your product is. And so you almost have an outside sales rep helping influence the opportunity. The next channel is typically going to be inbound. Inbound is going to be broken up into a number of different channels, but generally those are going to close at a much higher rate than traditional outbound, which is going to be the SDRs putting people in sequence, sort of mailing in mass and then following up with cold calls and creating opportunities that way. And so that's sort of how I think about the top of the funnel. I, I create a hierarchy in terms of conversion rates, and then I make sure that the top of that hierarchy is being fully exhausted before continuing down the path of, you know, going to the lower quality lead source, which would be outbound. The last thing there, Harry, is to make sure that you're going back to old closed lost opportunities because those people know who the company is. They're familiar with the product. And, you know, for a company that's a few years old, I've seen all too often these opportunities that just live in no man's land after they've been closed lost versus having somebody focused on going back after them. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more there on the close lost. I do want to slightly dig down into the funnel itself because I always think that kind of frictionless progress through the funnel is key. So for you, how long should it really take from, say, lead to MQL to SAL to opportunity to deal? What does that look like to you in your ideal mindset? Yeah, so similar to should the CEO 
sell up to a million dollars in ARR. I think it's going to be very company specific here. There are going to be a number of different factors. The first is the price for the product. Typically, more expensive products are going to have longer sales cycles. Also, the brand of the company. So the more brand recognition a company has, the faster cycle time that you're typically going to have. Um, So those are, are two big factors there. And then the third is the size of the company that you're selling into. So if you're selling into the true enterprise, just getting through legal and procurement is going to add something like 30 to 45 days to a sales cycle compared to selling into startup businesses that don't have the the legal and procurement requirements that those big companies do. So I think it's going to be very business specific. All of that said, I think the real answer is just faster. So look at what you have today from an average cycle time and try and think about what you can do to create additional urgency. There are a number of things that come to mind that I think we're going to talk about a little later in the recording here. But I think just general rule of thumb is how can we be faster, not necessarily where do we need to be? No, absolutely. I think kind of that faster is key element. Uh, I love that. I do want to finish on the strategy element just with one from Dave Kellogg. We spoke about multi-year deals with Dave. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on them, the importance of them from your sales perspective, and whether you think prepayments is crucial and how you think about that. Yeah, again, um, a little bit business specific. So on multi-year deals, a few things are really important. One is, does the customer have the option to opt out in those out years? And if the answer is yes, the multi-year deals are sort of less impactful. In fact, they're they're much more beneficial for the customer to have that price locked in and the optionality of renewing or not renewing. And so I think it's important from the business perspective, if it's a multi-year deal, that they're actually committing to that number of years. And then cash up front is huge. And so, you know, I think trading something like a discount for cash up front for out years is a trade that most SaaS sort of startup businesses that aren't profitable would be willing to make. And certainly in my experience, we were willing to make those types of trade-offs. Absolutely. I mean, you've touched on on quite a few elements there that I have to dive in now. So I want to finish the episode. And before we move into the quick fire, on something that you've said to me before being the importance of urgency in sales, what do you mean by this, Sam? And how do you envision this in the sales process? Uh, We talked about cycle times a little bit. You know, cycle times are so important in keeping them sort of as short as possible for a number of different reasons. I think the most obvious one is that you get to recognize revenue sooner. And so, you know, just a very easy example, if you take a 60-day average cycle time down to 30 days, what it means is that for every single customer that the business signs up, they're recognizing 30 extra days of revenue. And so you multiply one month of revenue by the number of customers that you have, and that's typically going to be a large number. So that's sort of the obvious impact of reducing cycle times. The less obvious impact is the improvement in conversion rates. And so you've heard probably, Harry, the cliche, time kills all deals. And, you know, truer words have never been said. So if you have a condensed cycle time, what it means is that your customer doesn't have the ability to go evaluate other options, conflicting internal priorities oftentimes come up, budgeting challenges internally come up. So the longer you have an opportunity that's sitting out there, the lower the probability that that's going to close. And so the sort of less recognized impact to shorter cycle times is in 
increased conversion rates. And, you know, we talked a little bit about discounting before. I think discounting is actually a great thing. If you're able to discount the product to accelerate cycle times, that's a trade-off certainly willing to make. And if you want to keep the price above a certain threshold, simply raise your product prices. So if you raise your product prices, discount down to the level that you're comfortable selling them and you decrease cycle times, you maintain that price integrity while also decreasing cycle times. And it's just a win-win. We have Dave Kellogg, as I mentioned on the show. He said that anytime you give a discount lower than your churn rate, it's a win. Would you agree with this kind of summarization? And how do you think about that? By that characterization, you know, for sure. You know, I think generally speaking, the lower the discount, the better, and the lower the churn rate, the better. And certainly if you can keep your discounts lower than your churn rates, that's a huge win for the business. You know, back to the previous point. So a lot of sales is psychology. And if you're not winning deals because your buyers don't feel like they're getting a good deal, and again, I would suggest increasing your pricing and giving them a larger discount because they're going to feel like they're getting a much better deal on the product and you may actually increase conversion rates that way. And so what I would do is I would just pick a price point that you're comfortable selling your product at, increase the price, and then tell your sales reps we're willing to discount down to this rate. And that's something like you know 25 to 30% below the list price of the product. Can I ask, you mentioned there the psychological element to the sales process. How do you know when's the right time to push on price and when to flex? What are the signs from the customer that really kind of make you move in either direction? I think you know a lot of this is going to be at rep's discretion. And you've probably heard the term EQ or emotional intelligence. You'll find certain reps that really understand when it's time to be aggressive and when it's time to maybe scale back the aggressiveness there based off of the reaction of the client. One thing that you can do is you can just sort of put it out there. Something like, look, you know, the end of our quarter is at the end of this month and finance is giving us a little bit of flexibility on pricing terms here. It could be advantageous if you think it's possible to get something done by the end of the month. It could be advantageous for you from a pricing perspective. Just want to put that out there. Let me know if you think that's realistic or not. Engage their feedback from there. Yeah, no, I love that. I do want to touch on one final element for the quick fire, being pilots. I often get founders ask me about whether they should or shouldn't engage with pilots. What's your take on pilots as a method of kind of increasing conversion in a step function way, so to speak? Slightly business specific here. We did them at EchoSign. We didn't do them at Zenefits. We did them at Rainforest as sort of an opt-out period within an agreement. And so I, I think it depends on the product itself. So first of all, they're very easy to set up. So at EchoSign, we could get somebody that could sign up for a free trial in a number of minutes, and then they could start sending out documents right away. We could limit trials to just a few days or maybe a week or two if it was a larger opportunity. And so those are all advantageous, I think, to giving customers the opportunity to use your product. You can also use it as a selling strategy. So, you know, use it against your competition, push using both of the products, especially if you have a superior product in sort of a trial format. And that will look good from the customer's perspective that you actually want them to use both products before signing up with one of them. And then, you know, it's more complicated to implement a product and requires a bunch of heavy lifting on the seller side, then maybe stay away from them. But again, I think your customers will sort of dictate whether that's going to be required or not. If you're finding a lot of success selling without pilots, no reason to fix something if it's not broken. Absolutely. No reason to fix something if it's not broken, which is why we always love to finish on the quick fire round. So 60 seconds per statement. Uh, Are you strapped in? (laughs) Let's do it. So the biggest misnomer on successful selling in SaaS. 
Well, we, we talked about a few of them. So discounting is bad is a misnomer. Hiring sales reps always equals more revenue is a misnomer. So we'll go with those two. What about logos in the early days? Quality or quantity? Both. <laughs> so and, and it depends on your target market. If you're selling into larger businesses, I think the brand of the logo is just hugely important. If you're selling into SMBs, it becomes less important and you want to tout the number of customers that you have over the fact that Google is using your product. Sales rep productivity, what's good to you? It depends on the company. So a couple of different ways to think about it. You can think about how much the rep is producing compared to how much you're paying them. I think typically you want to pay a sales rep all in something like 20% of what they're producing for the company. So if they have a million dollar quota and they're hitting that and they're making 200K in San Francisco, I think that's a good rule of thumb. And then productivity on the individual level compared to their peers, you know, I think anything but finishing first is a failure from my perspective. And so if as a rep, you have that mindset, you're going to be successful throughout your career. And then final one, what do you know now, Sam, that you wish you'd known at the beginning? That's a really good question. And it goes back to something that we had mentioned earlier in the show, Harry, around the importance of tracking opportunities all the way to close and that all opportunities are not created equal. We made the mistake at Zenefits at just saying we need this number of opportunities to be successful and we went really big on outbound. And what we found is that we were increasing the number of opportunities with the lowest quality opportunity varietal. And so just make sure that you're tracking not only the number of opportunities that you're creating, but the conversion rates of those opportunities and making your biggest bets in the highest quality. Sam, as I said, I had so many wonderful things from Jason for many years now. So thank you so much for joining me today. Harry, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Such a fantastic guest to have on the show and some really exciting times ahead seeing Sam build and scale that sales team at Brex. And if you'd like to see more from him, you can find him on Twitter at SamDBlonde without the E. Likewise, you can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be fantastic to see you there. However, before we leave you today, do not forget to check out Virtuous, the donor management platform that helps nonprofits build lasting donor relationships and ultimately increase giving. It's a suite of CRM and marketing tools that's simple enough to serve a nonprofit's entire staff, yet feature-rich enough to meet varied and complex fundraising needs, and you can learn more at virtuouscrm.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Virtuous did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. WePay's got this fantastic cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash sasta. And speaking of being smart about your offering, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business, and that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google Trust third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more, allowing you to see a 360-degree view of your reputation across the web with that robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that is looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. And you can head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. 
And if trust is a core element of any business, so is communication. Enter Dialpad, the startup that offers teams a better path to unified communications. Build your voice with a business phone system, meetings, call center, and voice AI, connecting your team across all existing devices. And that's why over 50,000 of the world's most innovative companies choose Dialpad, from WeWork to Uber to Stripe. And whether you're a one-office company with less than 100 people, to the names listed above, Dialpad has got you covered. So put your team and communication first and head over to dialpad.com to find out more. As always, I cannot thank you enough for tuning in and we have a fantastic episode coming for you next week.